0: Paul says, I pray, I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Tell me about your prayer life. Tell me about your prayer life. That has got to be one of the worst pastorisms I've ever heard in my life. Who wants to be asked a question like that? Tell me about your prayer life. I am rarely, if ever, happy about my prayer life. I constantly feel like I could be a better prayer. That I could spend more time in prayer. That I could get more out of praying than I usually do. And to be honest, I'm not even sure how I learned to pray in the first place. Maybe praying is like learning how to read. I know that at one point I didn't know how to do it. I know that I do now, and I'm not really sure about the magic that happened in the middle. Tell me about your prayer life. How would you feel right now if I singled any one of you out and said, Stand up, Vera Edmonds, and tell us about your prayer life. Actually, you're a bad example. You'd probably do a good job. (laughs) The rest of you, though, I'm sure, would probably squirm. No one wants to be asked a question like that. Tell me about your prayer life. And yet, somehow, for all the difficulty, the frustration, and the confusion that surrounds prayer, it might be the most important thing that the Bible has to offer us. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees... I get on my knees and I pray. Paul here in Ephesians is no longer offering sound, ethical advice. He's not telling us about what the future of the church will look like. He is simply praying. He is praying for the church. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. I think reading and praying are so similar. And like each other, we only learn how to pray by watching other people pray. Maybe you pray like Paul. You get down on your knees. You use all the right big words to elevate God. You earnestly yearn for the people around you that they might know that Christ dwells in their hearts. And above all, you pray for the world to know the breadth and the height and the depth of Christ's love. Or maybe you pray like one of my buddies, Will. He prays like this. Whoa, God! I mean, how great it was today! Thanks! That's some pretty awesome stuff you did. Like the clouds and the sun. Whoa! God! The sun! You made that! It was bright, but not too bright. Mm. You know what I mean? Well, of course you do. You're God. You know? Thank you. Friends, there is no right or wrong way to pray. Though there are certainly some things that are better to pray for than others. The point isn't so much how we pray, but that we pray... At all, years and years ago, I was helping this church in North Carolina, and one of my responsibilities there was to visit with what we call the shut-ins. You know what I mean when I say the shut-ins. It's it's people who were once part of a worshiping community, and because of either an illness or age, uh, coming to church on Sundays is no longer a possibility so while I was helping this church, my job during the week was to go visit the shut-ins. To bridge this, this gap, this chasm that had sort of erupted between them and the church. I would always go to someone's home, or retirement home, and I'd bring a bulletin with me. And I would sit down with them, and we'd talk about the service, we'd pull out a hymnal, we maybe sing a hymn together, and it always ended in prayer. And there were some people that I hated to visit. I mean, just needed to visit. And I'd still go, but they were the kind of people who just felt so down in their life that when I left being with them, I felt like my life had somehow gotten darker and gloomier. And I kept showing them up and I did everything I could to bring them a sense of grace and the gospel, and I sometimes just dreaded it. But there were a few people who I absolutely loved to visit. People who would just brighten my life. And there was one man in particular, he was a retired pastor. He was a retired pastor. He'd served the United Methodist Church for 50 years. And now he was retired. He was living alone in a retirement home. And I would go over to his house, and I had so, uh, his, his home in retirement center, and we had so much fun together. He would tell me stories about ministry. He told me what passages to avoid in the Bible. He said, no one's going to listen to you if you preach on this. They're all going to get confused. Stay away from it. He told me all these great stories. He even told me about one time, he had to be escorted by a police officer after a funeral he had presided over. I said, what in the world did you say? A cop had to drive you home after the funeral? And he said, yeah, I went to the reception and I drank a lot of punch and nobody told me there was alcohol. in
1: <laughs>
0: He had not had a drop of alcohol in his life until the day of that funeral and a police officer had to escort him home probably dressed like this. I love going to visit him. So much. One of my favorite things about our relationship was that it got to the point where I no longer needed to knock on the door when I got there. I would just show up, I'd open the door, and we'd sit down and we'd just start talking right away. Except one day, I went to go visit him, and I I opened the door, and i was standing in the door frame, and I saw him. He was on the floor. He was on his knees. By the edge of his bed. And he had his elbows up on the covers, and his head bowed. what a beautiful thing to behold. This man, this pastor had given 50 years of his life to the church. And even now, even in his retirement, he still took time to get on his knees and pray. But then I found myself in a bit of a conundrum because I didn't know what to do next. Because here I am, I'm standing in the doorway, and he's praying, and he has not moved to look at me. I thought, well, if I back out, what if he hears the door close? It might be kind of awkward. I don't want to just go sit on his chair on the other side of the room. That's kind of weird, too. And so I went over. I crept across the room with the balls of my feet. I got right <coughs> next to him, and I got down on my knees, and I put my elbows on the bed, and I figured I would pray with him. And so I leaned over, and I listened very, very carefully to what he was saying, and all I heard was He was completely asleep. I mean, passed out. And and I I sat there, and I tried so hard not to laugh. And then I thought, this is even worse than being stuck in the door frame. What if he wakes up, and this strange person is just, like, right next to him on his bed? I thought, if I get up, and I try to leave, what if he wakes up and sees me fleeing? He's going to think I stole something. So I didn't know what to do. I just put my hand up onto his back, and I slowly rubbed it. Until he woke up and he said, Amen. (laughs) Hey, Taylor. So good of you to drop by. Prayer. Tell me about your prayer life. When was the last time you fell asleep in the middle of a prayer? Tell me about your prayer life. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. He prayed for them because he was so filled with joy. So filled with joy that everyone, that all people, are part of God's family. No longer is there an us and them. There is no insider and outsider. All. All have been made part of the new family in Christ Jesus. And it's to this news, to the allness of the gospel, that Paul gets on the floor and he prays. He knows that trying days are ahead and this won't be easy news for the church to accept the incomprehensibility of the fact that all are part of this family, he knows that he cannot give the church the thing it needs to sustain itself because the church relies on God. The church needs God, not the other way around. And that's a really tall order in today's world and in today's culture because we're told from the time we're children to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We're told you can be anything you want to be. We're told that it's all up to us But the message of the gospel is actually the opposite. You cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You cannot be anything you want to be. You can't make it through this life on your own. And we certainly cannot pray on our own. Paul prays for the church to comprehend the incomprehensible, and that is not easy. But Paul prays that we might comprehend the incomprehensible with the saints. It is something we do in community, not in isolation. The more time I spent with that retired pastor, the one praying asleep or sleeping through his prayers, the more I really learned what he was like. Because for the first few months of regularly spending time with him, he was what I would call his Sunday morning self, that person he used to become on Sunday mornings for the churches that he served. He was able to keep that smile Be very, very joyful for the hour we were together. And I always left feeling like he had given me a benediction. But after a couple months of being there almost every week, I started to see behind the curtain. And I learned about his loneliness. I learned about his broken family, his fears, his failures. I started to see who he really was. And the hardest discovery of all was the day he told me he felt like he had moved beyond the love of God. (coughs) The great theme of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus is the fact that there is no nation, there is no tribe, there is no family, there is no individual who is beyond the love of God. And that might sound obvious to you, But it can be very difficult to believe, particularly when you've lost your community, or your family, or your church, who made that love feel manifest. Even on our best Sundays here at Cokesbury, we, the gathered people of God, we bring together a myriad of secret hurts and private humiliations and lost hopes. I have barely been here a year And I can stand behind this altar today and I can look out on the many truths that some of you have shared with me that you have not shared with anyone else. So when I look out, I see the broken families. I see the betrayals. I see the terror about an unknown future. I see pain and loss about people who used to sit in these pews with you. I know so many of the secret shames and the private failures that are contained in isolation. And I know that for many of you, your greatest fear is not any of those things, but any of those things getting loose. Other people finding out. And for some reason, you all keep showing up. You keep coming to church every week with your own weights and your own disappointments. You put on your Sunday self. You have that smile for the hour you're here, and you leave with a benediction. But what if, what if we revealed our truth to the church? Now, I don't mean that I'm going to start calling you out individually and make you stand up here in front of the altar with a microphone and say, hi, my name's Leo Bonner and I'm a sinner. (laughs) No, I don't mean that. But think, if you came with me for just a second about this, how could this church change? If we treated the church like Paul does that we pray for it and for one another rather than just a place where we spend time on Sundays. Paul prayed for the church to know, above all else, the love of God in Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Paul prayed for Christ to so dwell in the hearts and minds of God's people that they would be filled. Paul prays for us to imagine the unimaginable, to know the unknowable, to comprehend the incomprehensible. If we pray for our church, if we pray for Cokesbury, like Paul prayed for the Ephesians, then we do so by praying for a communal experience of the love of God. God loves us, and there's nothing we can do about it. That is the gospel. And God loves us, and there's nothing we can do about it. Of course, now I'm walking out into the sanctuary. That should be a trigger, a little warning that it's about to get uncomfortable in church. Because too much of church is this one-way thing. Someone stands up here and dispenses something to you, we hear it, and then we go. But if Paul has any indication, the church, at its very best, is the church when it prays for the church. When we We're are excited about what, have, what God has done for us and through us and with us. And so I want to be uncomfortable for just a moment. And I want you all to think... Remember a time, recently, long ago, where you felt the love of God, this unbridled love of God, a love that would not let you go, like being stuck with somebody kind of the love. And I want you to share it. And Gloria already did this morning, so I'm going to ask her to sort of start us off, if you don't mind, sharing again. So Gloria's going to kind of give us what this looks like, and I want you all to think about a time where you have known deep in your bones that God loved you.
1: Back when I was about 17, 16 years old, my friend and I were going to play basketball, and he was driving, and we were at a red light. And so I looked over to my right, and I saw this guy drinking, and just sitting in his car, and his light was green, and I was like, why is he just sitting there? And so when I, light turned green, he ran the red light and purposely ran into the car and hit my side full speed. And so the front part of the car started smoking, and catching on fire. These people were sitting on a porch across the street, ran out, and started hitting, taking their clothes off, hitting the, you know, trying to let the fire out. Some of us caught the ambulance in the fire department. And so I didn't feel any pain or anything. My friend could get out, but he couldn't and so he just sat there and waited, you know, because he even though there was smoke and everything. so so um, when they called the jaws of life or something, got me out, and that's when I felt the pain. I had a piece of metal in my head, but the car was completely, completely totaled. And everyone that looked at it said I should shouldn't even be here. I mean, it, it was just a miracle, and I knew that was from God. And um, I was telling the pastor that I would couldn't eat for almost a week because they had towed the car to in front of my parents' house until my friend's father was able to remove it and I would look at that car and just cry. You know, but I was thankful I was just psychologically being young and being scared and I lost a little bit of my hearing in my ear, but I just felt like I was very lucky and very blessed. I should not be here and um even during surgeries and stuff in my health and things like that, I was very lucky. And also, the guy got arrested by having 26 beers, empty bottles of beer, three bottles of Jack Daniel, alcohol, and he was drinking one while he was driving. But I'm still very grateful. Very grateful.
0: Amen. Amen. We used to call this testimony. Anyone else. Story, yes, can. I, I knew I could count you, Pam. So well, first off, my husband,
1: uh, we just celebrated our 45th year. And he made it work because I am being to his yang. I'm the positive, he's the negative. It works. Not always fun, but it works. But aside with that, I'm in my third round of cancer. And my husband's been me the whole way. He yells at me when I eat stuff that's am not supposed to, like sweets. So he's still with me. He kills me. I try to keep him on the right way, But that's what my church family does too, and my good friends. So that's it. God has always been with me,
0: and I know he's always there watching. All the One more. Anybody else? One more. and I've got one for us. Yeah. You can sit. You can do whatever <laughs> you want. Just okay. be happy I'm not making you stand up here in
2: front of This goes a very long time ago. We were in England. Our children were small at that time. We were in England five years. We had claimed asylum the over there into a religious belief back home from where I am. That's Pakistan. I've country to bits, but unfortunately it's not the same as we were when we were growing up. We lived in England for five years, the case collapsed totally, and we were sent to the detention centre. These two young kids, Crystal, my daughter, Calvin, and my husband, Nigel, stayed there for about two nights, and then, that, that this is Glasgow, we were flown down south to Gatwick from where we were supposed to fly back home. With the four of us, we had seven Scots. There was a doctor, there was a psychiatrist, there were four other people and a female because it was Crystal and myself being female, so they had a female escort. And what, we were supposed, what was supposed to happen to us was that when we had to reach the homeland, we were supposed to be given to the authorities, handed over in a silver platter so that they could take care of us not in a very good and a positive way, but to deal with us for fleeing the country and speaking against the law of the country. Those seven Scots, we had a seven hour journey break in Bahrain or whatever it was. They came over to us and they said, we are not escorting you. You're gonna travel alone. Because if we escort you back to the country, you are gonna be in big trouble. Because when we take passengers back, they are straight taken to jail and treated like animals. You are good people and we don't want that to happen to you. So that is the time I knew that there are prayers, from family, friends, and my own faith, my children's faith, that we, the Lord has his promises every day in the Bible and I will not leave you alone. But thank God for that, that if we are saved, fine. We reached there, we were okay. And nothing of that sort happened that we were anticipating. Praise Lord for
0: A few weeks ago, um, one of our beloved church members lost her son, uh, very, very unexpectedly, and uh, we had to have his funeral, Uh, something she never could have prepared for, never ever had to think about, and when I arrived to do the service, um, we got ready to do it, and uh, a quarter of the people who came for the funeral were Cokesbury, the people from our church, who took time out of their day-to-day life, out of their schedules to drive to Fairfax to do nothing more than to sit in the pews side by side with a woman who lost her son. I, I almost lost it just seeing that before I had to say anything. Because that, that is at the heart of what the church is to be. It is a church that can surround a young woman in a car accident in prayer. It's a church that can surround a woman going through her third round of chemotherapy in prayer. It is a church that can surround a family without any hope of anything good happening in prayer. It is a church that surrounds someone who has lost a loved one in prayer. The truth of the gospel, the wonderful, beautiful truth of the good news, is that God loves us, and there's nothing we can do about it. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen.